0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, how did Hong Kong activist Finn Lau end up with a million dollar bounty on his head?
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
1: London, if you've been there, probably feels relatively safe. It's the UK, a free country mostly, but there are people living in the city who experience it very differently, as a much more threatening place.
3: So imagine you are going out to buy groceries, yeah, you know, to Tesco, to Aldi, etc. But then that twenty minutes walk. You have to look, keep looking around. You see whether some people may follow you after you leave your home. So that is how we will feel like.
1: Finn Lau is a Hong Kong political activist. He's in exile, living in the UK, and for years he's been on a Chinese government list of serious criminals. And all day, every day, even though he's thousands of miles from Chinese territory, he feels like he's being watched. A few weeks ago, Finn woke to the news that Beijing had announced a reward for his capture, a million Hong Kong dollars, or a £100,000.
3: So it's quite challenging to keep alert all the time. And sometimes I even got some weird experience. For example, maybe some some suspicious people would pretend to be a journalist to approach me online or maybe take my photos during some uh, rallies.
1: That bounty is more than what the Chinese government is offering for fugitives accused of murder, more than for a pair of arsonists accused of killing 17 people. And that's extraordinary. But so is the way Fin Lao even became a top political activist, with a post on social media that became a whole new strategy to fight Beijing and changed the course of his life. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a conversation with one of China's most wanted. Fin Lau was born in 1993, four years before the Hong Kong handover, when control of the city passed from a British colonial government to China.
2: When the Royal Yacht Britannia pulled away just after midnight, it was the final chapter in an imperial adventure that began 156 years ago when Britain grabbed what Lord Palmerston was to call a barren rock. Well, the rock that Governor Chris Patton and his tearful family left just five hours ago is now one of the richest spots on Earth.
1: For Beijing, the handover was a glorious occasion the long overdue writing of a historical wrong.
3: Hong Kong, you know, belongs to
0: China, so, you know, it's time to return back to where it belongs.
3: Do you think things will be the same? Will things change?
0: We'll change, but we're looking forward for a good change.
1: For the British, there was less to celebrate, though they couldn't really complain.
0: Britain is part of Hong Kong's history, and Hong Kong is part
1: of Britain's history. And for many in Hong Kong, especially those in Finn's generation, the kids who would inherit the city, was the beginning of a kind of identity crisis.
3: I would say I never got the sense of, uh, well, identity as a so-called ethnic Chinese, because, well, I was born in Hong Kong, I live in a village uh, in Hong Kong. That is quite an unusual experience when compared to so many Hong Kongers who live in some uh, skyscrapers. So I think that is part of the reason why, because maybe because of my connection to the soil, to the land, it makes me quite proud of being in Hong Kong.
1: British control of the islands that make up Hong Kong dates back to the 19th century and the Opium Wars. To be clear, Hong Kong was acquired in an act of imperial violence. Britain, vastly more powerful than China at the time, signed a lease to control the territory for 99 years. Over that time, Hong Kong prospered and became one of the world's leading financial centres. By the 1980s, the end of that 99-year lease was in sight. China wanted the islands back, and even Margaret Thatcher's government had to concede that ongoing British colonial rule couldn't be justified or defended by force.
0: In Hong Kong itself, Mrs Thatcher was given a mixed reception after signing the agreement. Most people gave her a warm welcome. But there were protest demonstrations too, from those among Hong Kong's overwhelmingly Chinese population, who feel that they are victims of a sell that they will eventually be forced to accept an ideology they have rejected.
1: In 1997, like it or not, the British returned control of Hong Kong to China. But there were conditions. China, run by the authoritarian Communist Party, agreed to preserve Hong Kong's free market system for 50 years. It would be one country with two systems, as one slogan went. China promised that Hong Kong's local elections, its laws allowing for limited protests and free speech, would remain in place for 50 years with no change. What would happen after that? As a kid, Finn felt like the adults around him didn't have an answer.
3: Back in 1999, yes, uh, when I was six years old, just two years after the Hong Kong handover. So at that time, it, it, the background is that there is a subject called general studies, and then they will teach us some kind of basic knowledge, like uh, there are 18 districts uh, in Hong Kong. There are some magical words like one country, two systems, 50 years of no change. They simply ask us to recite it. But then I just tried to calculate, do a basic calculation. 50 years, I should be still alive. Then what will Hong Kong look like? But then the teacher didn't give me some sort of answer. And then so that's how I always got the scene of questioning the future of Hong Kong.
1: So there were these questions that nobody in the city knew how to respond to and didn't even try to by the sounds of things.
3: Yeah, because I think at the time I asked a question that should not be asked.
1: Unconsulted in this whole deal between the UK and China were the people of Hong Kong. And quickly, they started to make their voices heard. In 2003, when Finn was just 10 years old, half a million people filled the streets of Hong Kong to protest against a national security bill they feared would curb people's civil rights. Eleven years later, in 2014, when Beijing proposed to start screening who could run for office in Hong Kong, tens of thousands of Hong Kongers, including Finn, by now at university, occupied some of the city's biggest intersections for months.
0: They've been planning this for months. Supplies to fuel a sit-in that has no end date. They were ready for the tear gas.
1: By 2019, when China proposed a law that might see people extradited from Hong Kong to the mainland to face trial, the city erupted again in the largest demonstrations it had ever seen. The protesters lay traps, fishing line tied low across streets for Robocops to trip on, sprinkled soya beans and marbles and soap suds for Robocops to slip on. The swirling CS gas stings your skin. But these are hardened street warriors now. They've all got masks and they run rings around the police. By this time, Finn was living in London, working as a surveyor. There were much smaller protests in London and he went along to those. But he kept thinking, there must be more that we can do.
3: So back in 2019, yeah, the day that we got 1 million people on the street of Hong Kong, that is the day that I started my team. I thought there must be much more to do other than having a weekly rally outside embassy. I don't think that was an effective way to pressure the Hong Kong government, the Hong Kong authorities to drop the bill. So that's why uh, I was the first one in Hong Kong uh, to propose the idea of sanction.
1: It's worth stressing here that Finn is an unlikely political leader. He says that other than going to the odd protest, he was never that political. And the big political step that would change his life didn't feel like a big step at the time. He made a post on a forum suggesting an idea that, as well as the protests on the streets, the people of Hong Kong should be lobbying foreign governments to sanction the city's leaders who are lining up with Beijing take away their foreign passports, seize their overseas assets. He wanted his own city to be sanctioned internationally, paralysing its economy and doing damage to China's in the process. Think of it as a tweet you dash off one day when you're angry and go away and do something else and come back to find the tweet has really blown up.
3: So it was my first time to write a post in a Hong Kong version of Reddit. And then somehow I tried more than 2,000 responses because I articulated how to execute it uh, bit by bit in a systematic way.
1: Was the post under your name?
3: Yeah, but it was a fake name. The fake name is I Want Lam Chao. Lam Chao is a Cantonese word which could be translated as If we burn, you burn with us. If we burn, you burn with us. So it's a tagline coming from the famous movie or novel called uh, Hunger Games. Because in that story, the main characters, they try to drive a revolution to fight against a dictatorship. So it somehow accurately reflected a Cantonese term.
1: Finn's anonymous post got more than 2,000 responses. And working from his house in London, he started linking up with other activists and figuring out how to make their plans a reality. They lobbied MPs, they got advertisements placed in newspapers around the world, calling for the kinds of sanctions imposed on Russian oligarchs to be placed on Hong Kong's leading politicians. It was provocative, and for Finn, electrifying.
3: I feel quite surreal, even on Tinder, because I never want to be uh, or plan to be a political activist, never plan to be a policy advocate. But then because of a certain inspiration that sparked uh, it simply sparked off a uh, different tragedy of my life, I would say.
1: What was your life like at the time? Because you worked as a surveyor. Like, were you going to work during the day and then at night you were a leader in this massive protest movement thousands of miles away? Like, what was your life like at the time?
3: <laughs> well, I always joke about that because back in <clears throat> 2019 to 2020, Uh, I was living uh, like uh, having a double life or even triple life. I couldn't tell any of my friends what I was doing because it was quite dangerous. On the other hand, my colleagues wouldn't know what I've been doing. And my teammates of the Hong Kong movement, I couldn't tell them what I have been facing in reality. So some people even describe it,
1: "Wow, it sounds like a Batman life. Uh, like Batman's life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And that whole time, you were anonymous. Yes, yes. So that is
3: maybe one of the characteristics uh, of the 2019 Hong Kong um, movement. After all, it was a leaderless movement. We got so many different key players in different areas. But then, even now, I felt quite honoured that so many Hong Kong people would chop that slog.
1: By the end of 2019 the Hong Kong government agreed to withdraw the extradition bill that had sparked months of demonstrations. But things, by that point, had gone too far for everyone to just go home. Every uprising has its signature siege. And in Hong Kong, it's around the Polytechnic University. After five days of becoming part fortress, part arsenal, part medieval role play, the authorities decided it was time to break that siege and show Beijing that they can still run this city. But dislodging hundreds of hard bitten protesters isn't easy, especially when many people are on their side. The protesters kept going, and Finn returned to Hong Kong himself to join them.
3: I joined one of the protests in Hong Kong on the first day of 2020.
0: An anti-government march has been broken up by police after scuffles broke out between protesters and riot police. Tens of thousands of demonstrators had taken to the streets for a largely peaceful New Year's Day rally against China's growing influence and the erosion of civil liberties in the territory.
3: There was one million people protesting on the streets, even after six months of fighting. At that time, I was there, and then we simply marched to the central, to the Emirati of Hong Kong. But then I have witnessed so many different police brutality, for example, tear gas canister. They use these sorts of things to handle a totally peaceful protest. And unfortunately, I was arrested alongside with a few hundred people.
1: At the time of his arrest, Finn was still living a double life, his pseudonym. I want Lam Chow, was recognised as a significant political activist and, in the eyes of the Chinese government, a criminal. And now they had him in their custody. Finn could only hope. They didn't know it.
3: When I was at the police station, whenever they call my so-called number, uh, the number that I signed by the Hong Kong police uh, after the arrest, I felt that I'm now going to, to mainland China, being sent to mainland China, up uh, being disappeared because that happens a lot uh, during the hong kong cultures or even in, in china so that was the feeling but on the other hand i just felt that there's nothing i could do that's why i should not worry about it and i didn't worry about it i was very very calm uh, at the police station
1: must have been a huge relief to eventually be released to realize they hadn't connected the dots and figured out who you really were
3: Yes, so after more than 50 hours of detention, the moment of being released, uh, when that moment came, it was quite surreal. And then I realized that it's just a matter of time they'll figure that out. So uh, that's why I changed my plan uh, of staying in Hong Kong for a few weeks more to simply flying back to London.
1: In 2020, like everywhere else, life in Hong Kong was paused. The COVID pandemic forced people to stay at home, the streets were empty, protests were suspended, and rumours started to spread that Beijing was considering a way to end Hong Kong's resistance, once and for all. In May, the Chinese government announced it was considering a new bill to, quote, safeguard national security. The text of the bill was secret and it passed through China's parliament at midnight on the last day of June 2020.
3: Groups and individuals advocating Hong Kong independence and colluding with foreign forces to interfere with Hong Kong's affairs have seriously undermined national interest and security. Hong Kong has become a gaping hole in national security, and our city's prosperity and stability
0: are at risk.
1: It was effectively the end of China's agreement with the UK, the end of one country, two systems, the start of a new Hong Kong, and its residents felt the difference straight away. People who owned flags or stickers calling for a free Hong Kong were arrested, charged with offences that now carried a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Chanting the wrong slogan, wearing the wrong T-shirt, even carrying blank white pieces of paper could be enough to land you in jail. The offices of Apple Daily, the largest pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong, were raided, and the paper was soon shut down.
0: Its closure has escalated alarm over media freedom and other rights in the Chinese-ruled city.
1: Hong Kong, as the world had known it for decades, effectively ceased to exist. Finn, what was it like for you... To be in London in 2020, watching this movement that you had sacrificed for, that you believed in so much, just be crushed. I just
3: felt that I got the survivor's guilt. Uh, I think I had to use my so-called relative freedom. I think I have to continue the fight.
1: I'm sure you were still talking to friends and family in Hong Kong as the national security law was being imposed. What were they telling you? about the kinds of things happening there at that time
3: so at that time um we don't have any sorts of civil liberties yeah press freedom academic freedom freedom of expression all freedoms all civil liberties were crushed we even got a collapsing uh, judiciary system so that's why we don't have any kind of rule of law in hong kong right now after a few months there are more than uh, 50 Hong Kong activists, prominent figures got arrested at the same time. It was the largest, uh, I would say, police operation maybe in the history of Hong Kong. So all of a sudden, all the prominent Hong Kong political figures are either in jail or being prosecuted or in exile. So that was a critical moment. And then it somehow stimulated uh, the exodus of Hong Kongers to different uh, democratic countries to continue the fight.
1: When did you start to feel that the Chinese government was figuring out who you were? So my first thought is that the Beijing
3: regime, they may take another two to three years uh, to figure out who I was. But then it didn't come true because they simply used two to three months to figure that out. So that's how I got my uh, restaurant back in August, uh, the summer of 2020.
1: How did you find out about it?
3: So I was meeting one of a prominent Hong Kong activists in London at that time, and then it was our first time to meet each other in person. So it was quite funny because when I was having my food, having my burger, and then all of a sudden, he gave me uh, his phone asking me, who is la And I was shocked because I never used the real name on any occasions, including forum or even in different kind of internal team coordination. So that's the moment that I know I somehow become officially in up. Yeah.
1: What did that feel like?
3: Uh in the very beginning uh I couldn't think of anything. Yeah. I just think that uh I should think about a proper response to the situation. After all one day before there was a raid of the Apple Daily headquarters uh, more than 400 police simply read at a newspaper, and and then the second day, well, I got my arrest uh, warrant. Right.
1: It's a pretty incredible transformation that you've undergone in that period. You've gone from someone who has a job, who is not very political, who probably has a plan for their future, and then within about 18 months, you're standing in front of a camera, announcing to the whole world that you're a wanted political activist. What is going through your mind as that's happening?
3: This is a good question. Uh, it's a long journey and I face a very, very steep uh, learning curve. After all, I haven't done any source of public speaking uh, back in <clears throat> October 2020. And then when I faced the so-called crowd, <laughs> that crowd, that we, uh, on that day we simply got 20 or 30 people outside 10 Downing Street to, to talk about Hong Kong. And I was nervous. My hands uh, were shaking, and still, people thought I think that I, I delivered a good uh, speech, public proper speech. But I was not satisfied with my performance. I think that well, am I qualified to do that? But I didn't give up.
1: it was around that time as you were grappling with these changes in Hong Kong and trying to deal with the fact that you were potentially on the Chinese government's radar that something really terrible happened to you. Tell me about that.
3: So it was uh, during the first lockdown period in in the UK. At that time, I was followed by three uh, suspicious people near my house. I was having my daily walk and I suspect that they were following me. But then uh, once I stopped by a lamppost, they punch my right eye. I thought I was blinded. I thought I, uh, well, uh, well, I, I thought I lost uh, my eye. So it was so painful, and then they keep punching and kicking my head, simply going after my head, and that's how uh, I passed out yeah, during the attack. And I was so fortunate to wake up, and then I was sent to the hospital uh, to go yeah got some kind of treatment. There were so many things that were quite quite weird during the attack because they didn't say anything racist. They didn't take any of my personal belongings.
1: So that they didn't say anything. They didn't rob you. They just attacked you for no reason.
3: Yes, they simply attacked me. And then when I was sitting at the, at the hospital getting some kind of excellent treatment from the doctor and nurses for five to six hours, I pondered what is the meaning of life. When I was beaten up, there was a moment that I asked myself, is this the end of my life? And then uh, I told myself, if, if yes, then I gladly accept it. Even though in the future I may, may sacrifice myself, but I think it could serve as an inspiration to perhaps generation of Hong Kongers of how we should fight against the Chinese Communist Party. But then I somehow entered uh, a well, long period of uh, severe depression after that. And then uh, it took me several months to tackle that. But after that, I think my level of uh, determination uh, simply got elevated to the level that uh, I want to, I have to go fully public.
1: Is there any doubt in your mind about what motivated that attack?
3: The motivation uh, behind the attack, uh, I would say, is highly likely related to the Beijing regime. Although we don't have uh, direct evidence proving that, but we have uh, different sorts of circumstances or evidences. And even before the incident, two months before the incident, I got uh, a call from my friends in Hong Kong. So there are some uh, frontline protesters. And then they told me uh, there has been a rumor saying that There is a one million Hong Kong dollar bounty on your life, on your head, and asked me to be very cautious. So, two months later, uh, that happened. And then, two months after the attack, my identity got exposed. So, I think that's why it's highly likely related to, to Beijing.
1: Recently, you and seven other Hong Kong activists, including Nathan Law, maybe the most prominent pro-democracy campaigner in the movement, learned that the Chinese government had put these million Hong Kong dollar bounties on your heads.
3: What's
1: it like to find something like that out? It was quite surreal. Oh. Because when,
3: when I woke up in the morning, I received tons of messages saying that, well, take care. And some people sent me some links to news article. And I was, well, quite quite puzzled because I, I haven't read some, uh, any news at that time. And then once I read the news article, I simply laughed. You laughed? Yeah, I laughed because I've lost counting of how many arrest warrants, uh, have been issued by the draconian Autocratic Hong Kong authorities and,
1: and Beijing already. In your life now, do you and other activists here and in other places around the world feel the presence of the Chinese government? I heard, for example, that you had an event in parliament where somebody tried to force their way in, claiming they were a Chinese tourist who was lost. How common are incidents like that?
3: So I always got the feeling that uh, the big brother is watching you. That incident is that, um, well, I was uh, having uh, a parliamentary briefing uh, on the Hong Kong situation, on the bounty. But all of a sudden, there was a guy who pretended to be a tourist and then claimed that he got lost and then broke into the room. And then the main host uh, simply uh, drove him away. On the other hand, uh, I got some kind of a weird occasion that someone may pretend to be the officer of the Westminster City Council and then to ask us uh, to provide identity documents during a rally. So yeah, even online fake journalists request on Twitter more than 60 to 70 fake accounts using my profile picture, using my same biography, etc. So they are quite creative in harassing
1: people. Coming up, why Finn is optimistic he'll be able to return to Hong Kong one day.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV, read a book, Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash today in focus.
1: Finn, you're no longer working as a surveyor. You're now a full-time activist. In a practical way, how does this bounty from the Chinese government affect the way that you live your life? What kind of complications does it throw up?
3: I would say life has changed a lot uh, since 2020. I have become a person that will work with great precaution. And then, on the other hand, uh, it somehow elevated my level of determination. Back in 2019, say, or 2020, I need to work from 9 to 5, but then right now we don't really have a fixed uh, working hours. Every hour could be uh, a working hour because we have to uh, look at the Hong Kong situation, China situation. And then if there is anything that is uh, urgent, then we need to react to it. And then on the other hand, we have to proactively uh, look forward to plan ahead. We should not simply be reactive to, to the situation in Hong Kong.
1: Looking back, before you wrote about Lam Chow on the forum, if you could go back to that moment, would you do it again?
3: Yes, I would go back to that moment. Although it is a very, very extremely painful journey, I feel quite grateful to meet Hong Kongers around the world. I wouldn't expect that back in 2019 because right now, whenever I, I go to a country, say maybe the Netherlands, the Sweden, Australia etc Canada then there must be some Hong Kong friends uh, they will try to take care of myself and we will have uh, maybe different sorts of activities together and that is quite a wonderful experience although it's quite uh, painful to be in exile to face these uh, sorts of uh, day-to-day harassment and facing different sorts of uh, difficulties to steer the movement outside Hong Kong
1: do you think you'll ever be able to to go back to hong kong
3: yes i think i could go back to hong kong i think that there must be a time that a dictatorship regime would collapse when we look back to the history if you maybe perhaps take a time machine going back to 1960s if you tell people that the ussr would collapse suddenly back in the 1980s 90s people would say you're crazy in the end, we know the history. So as long as we could adopt the correct strategies to contain the, uh, the Chinese regime, then perhaps uh, we got a chance to free Tibet, to free Hong Kong, to free East Turkestan, etc. And then different people could return to our homeland without any sort of fears of arrested or any fears of being persecuted. And I believe that they will come.
1: Finn, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. That was Finn Lau, an exiled Hong Kong political activist. You can read more about Finn's story in an article by Geneva Abdul. That's at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Hannah Moore. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.